Good morning, everybody. If you want to open your Bibles, this morning we are finally going to finish the section that we have been talking about in the book of Hebrews, the very first verses of Hebrews chapter 12. As we have gone through this, I never expected that it would take so long, but that's the story of my life. I start writing and I start studying and I start writing and I start studying and it winds up taking longer than I expect it to take. But we really are continuing a flow of thought that began in verse in chapter 11 that has to do with living out faith. And chapter 11 begins with a definition of faith. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. And then the writer goes on to catalog a great realm of people from the Old Testament era who exhibited faith in God, which allowed them to endure tremendous hardships. It allowed them to do things that humanly seemed impossible. And the point of the writer of Hebrews is that they could do these things by faith, But not only could they do these things by faith, we, as recipients of God's grace, as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, we can endure the hardships we face by faith as well. The faith that sustained them is the faith that can sustain us. That's the ultimate point of the history lesson, is that these individuals were not extraordinary from any human capacity. They were extraordinary because they trusted an extraordinary God who enabled them to do everything God called them to do. And as we went through the material over a couple of weeks, I broke it down into the, the way to run an effective race because the imagery of chapter 12, verses 1 through 3, is of an athletic contest, of a race says this in chapter 12 verses 1 through 3 therefore since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us let us lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us fixing our eyes on Jesus the author and perfecter of faith who for the joy set before him endured the cross despising the shame and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God for consider him who is in endured such hostility by sinners against himself so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. And as we began to talk through this, I broke it down into four keys to running an effective race because the entire focus of the author is to bridge the gap between what these Old Testament saints did, also looking at Jesus, our ultimate example, and what he did, and he's encouraging every one of us, we can do likewise. We can hang on. No matter what is in our way, we can continue to serve God. And so when I broke it down into four keys to running an effective race, the first key was be encouraged by our faithful examples. That was it. It was the great cloud of witnesses, those who in essence are surrounding us, cheering us on, encouraging us to keep moving forward. The second point, and again, I've talked through these, so I'm not going to go through it in detail. I'm just reiterating what the points were. Be diligent to remove hindrances to our run. And that can be any encumbrance, any weight that would slow us down, not necessarily sin. Anything that pulls us away from effectively walking for the Lord. Steve Kreloff and I have talked about this since I taught on that because of our own struggles with sports. Nothing sinful with watching a football game, but my heart attitude distracts a lot from the Lord when Florida State's losing. And Pastor Steve is pleading ignorance now. 
as someone who just endured 18 innings of the Giants sitting on the edge of his seat, and they won. But the point is, there can be things in your life that aren't sinful in and of themselves. They're not in and of themselves wickedness. And yet, if they weigh you down and keep you from effectively keeping your eye on Jesus Christ and running the race, the writer says, lay them aside. Get rid of them. Put them aside. Watch your heart. Do a self-examination. Be prepared. The other aspect, though, is sin. The sin which so easily entangles us. The idea of someone running down the field and they're, they're tripping over themselves because they've got a, a flowing robe or some type of encumbrance that tangles up their legs and boom, they're falling. And none of us can get to the finish line if we spend all of our time laying down. The writer's point is be serious with sin. He doesn't specify which sin because each one of us struggles with our own sin. But the idea is stop it. Be done. If you're going to be an athlete and you're going to compete, you've got to be serious about this. This is a serious race. Christianity is not supposed to be a spectator sport where we get our popcorn and we sit on the sidelines and we watch Pastor Steve do what he does and we watch Mike Schott do what he does and we just cheer everybody. No, we're in the race. We're moving. Even if God hasn't called each one of us to be the same thing, some are hands, some are feet, some are eyes, some are ears, the body of Christ is designed so that we all have our own little part to play and we've got to be moving forward. So if there's anything that hinders us, we put it aside. And the last time we talked uh, was the third point was be focused on the ultimate victor, which is be focused on Jesus Christ. Fixing our eyes on Jesus. The idea being that we don't take our focus off of him. And the writer again used athletic imagery where in the ancient times, quite often they would put whatever the trophy was, be it a, a garland or a wreath, they'd put it there at the finish line. And so you knew you're running and I want that. That's what you're running for. And the idea is that Jesus himself, when he went to the cross, he understood the agony that he was going to endure, which is why he shed tears as drops of blood. And while he prayed, Father, if it's possible, let this cup pass. He knew what was involved, and yet he also said, but not my will, but thy will. And he willingly laid down his life. He endured all of that because he could see the prize, which was his glorification, which was the joy of being able to reconcile sinners to a holy God. That's how he could run the race and ignore all of what he was going to face and all the hardship and facing the wrath of God. He wasn't oblivious to those things. He wasn't naive. He just knew what the big prize was, and that's what he was focused on. The idea is we should be doing the same thing. We shouldn't be focused on all the little things that go on around us, that distract us, that cause us issues. We're so easily diverted. Our eyes can be distracted by here and here, and if we do that, we're not running forward. So the exhortation, as it would be with a runner, is don't look at the other runners. Don't look at the crowd. Don't look at anything else. Look at the finish line. Make a beeline for where you need to go. And the I is, that's Jesus Christ. He's the one beckoning us and calling us on. And this great cloud of witnesses cheering for us. And we're not racing each other. We're not. It's not which one of us gets there first. It's every one of us needs to get there. And so even for us, we're encouraging one another and picking one another up and going and pushing and pushing and we are going to get to the prize. Along the way, we'll need help. That's why we can pray to God. According to Hebrews 4, we have a high priest who can sympathize with our weaknesses. 
He understands our struggles. He understands the challenges we face. And yet he calls us to be like him. And the writer of Hebrews is saying what Jesus did in the sense of entrusting himself to God, we can do. Just like Jesus kept his eye on the real prize, so we should keep our eye on the real prize. That's why over and over in the scriptures we are told that we are strangers on this earth. We're not citizens of this earth. Our kingdom is in heaven. Our citizenship is in heaven. Our treasure is in heaven. All of those are the same thing. Fix your eyes on Jesus. Jesus is in heaven. Fix your eye on the ultimate prize, on the ultimate goal. Is it important to run the race here on earth? Of course. If the Lord gives us another day or another year or another decade or decades, we still run the same way. We've got to be focused on Christ because the things that distract us in this world, the things that discourage us in this world, they're not going away. In fact, they'll probably get worse. To finish the race, you can't spend your time looking at all the obstacles looking at the hurdles, looking at the trials, you get so focused on that, you forget the one who's enabling you to finish. And that sort of summarizes all the teaching prior to this. So I'm going to come today to the final consideration, the fourth key to running an effective race. And it's this, and it's very simple, but it's what the text is saying. Be faithful to complete the race. Be faithful to complete the race. I want to encourage you, as I think the Word of God in verse 3 is encouraging you, you have to finish. Now again, we understand from athletic contests or the Olympics, a person can run like crazy, and if they collapse 100 yards short of the finish line, guess what? They get nothing. They don't get credit for having looked great up to that last 100 yards. They get nothing. And as... Children of God, I'm no way suggesting, and the scripture's not suggesting that you can lose your salvation. The idea, though, is to be faithful to God, you need to be exerting effort all the way to the finish line. Verse 3 says this, For consider him who has endured such hostility by sinners against himself, so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. Now, I don't want to be harsh with this because I know my own struggles, but I... I get the sense that what we're being told here is stop making excuses. Yet we're being told that not in a slapping way, but in a comforting and a loving way of, okay, we've got to keep going. This idea of consider him really focuses on the same thing, fixing our eyes on Jesus. And why would we have an exhortation that we shouldn't grow weary and lose heart? Because God knows that we get weary and we lose heart. Period. We break down. We struggle. In the midst of the storms of life that come our way, we can be tempted to stop. I'm going to make several cultural references today that always make me a little bit uneasy. But the Bible is not a fantasy book and it's not a painting a picture of life as Disney World why it makes me so frustrated people like Joel Osteen who are selling a Disney World Christianity let's just be happy all the time come to Jesus so that all your dreams will come true that's not the Christian life when you come to Jesus you will find persecution and hardship and struggles 
because we live in a sinful and fallen world. You may be despised like he was despised. Your body may break down like his was broken. Your family may think you're crazy or nuts, just like his family before the cross thought that about him as brothers and sisters. God may put before you a hard life, a hard race. He put a hard race in front of Jesus. He endured brutality at the hands of sinners. He endured humiliation and injustice. And the whole point is, if you follow in his footsteps, don't give up. Don't grow weary. Keep pressing on. Don't lose heart. This isn't some new thing that happened. It happened to your Savior. Don't be stunned when it happens to you. That's why over and over in the New Testament, there are exhortations, there are warnings that we're going to face trials. We're going to face hardships. James chapter 1 is considered all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials. The idea is everyone will. There's no get out of jail free card for Christianity where, hey, I got this. I get to go straight to the end of the line. Unless your faith is like the thief on the cross who dies instantly, you're going to have troubles on this earth. You're going to endure things. The idea, again, is don't get caught up with how unfair things are. I cringe whenever people, and I'm counseling, and they're going over and over about how unfair things are. Not because they aren't unfair, they are. But the unfairness of it is irrelevant. It's irrelevant. How fair was it what happened to Jesus? We live in an unjust world. We live in a world that will be unfair. Is it right? Of course not. Is it sinfully wrong? Of course it is. But it is. That's why the writer says, for consider him. Look to Jesus. Be reminded of his example. Here's what we often do. We look at our circumstances. I'm guilty of it. All we can do is look at our circumstances and we see all of the realities on this earth of trials and tribulations and we don't look to our Savior. And this idea of consider him, it's not just think a happy thought about Jesus. It's dwell on what Jesus endured. Really think deeply about it. Really comprehend what is going on. We have to dwell and we have to think. That's one of the dangers that we all face in our consumer entertainment driven world. It's hard to think about Jesus because there's always something on TV. There's always a radio program. There's always an internet website. There's always Facebook. And whereas maybe it used to be when I first got a computer that was at home after work. Well now it's 24-7 everywhere you go. I think it's an interesting issue. There's a lot of times where we'll talk about what's going on, but we won't think about Jesus in the midst of it. We'll complain to other people, but we won't stop and think about Jesus. Now, how do you consider Jesus? How do you think about Jesus? It's not some type of mystical thing. It's not going out in a desert with candles and robes and chanting mantras at all. How do you think about what happened to Jesus? There's only one way. What's revealed about Jesus in the Word of God. You've got to be thinking on the Scriptures. You've got to be thinking on what God's Word says. 
This is really the heart of everything I'm talking about today is the centrality of God's word in navigating this life. Unfortunately, we have a tendency to want some razzmatazz, something a little with more bells and whistles, some fireworks. But when we're told to consider him, you can't consider him apart from what is revealed in God's word. You can't navigate the Christian walk, the Christian life, if your Bible is on the shelf or if it's propping up something. You've got to be meditating upon, dwelling upon what God has revealed in his word about his son. The only truth you know about Jesus comes from the Bible, period. You can't be saved apart from the Word of God. Romans 10, 12 to 17 has a beautiful exhortation about the centrality of the preaching of the Word to salvation. Verse 12, for there's no distinction between Jew and Greek. This is Romans chapter 10. Verse 12, there's no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, abounding in riches for all who call on Him. For whoever will call on the name of the Lord will be saved. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. But verse 14, how then will they call on Him in whom they have not believed? How will they believe in Him whom they have not heard? And how will they hear without a preacher? How will they preach unless they are sent? Just as it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news of good things. However, they did not all believe the good news. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed our report, verse 17. So faith comes from hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. Again, you can't consider Jesus by watching TV, no matter how redeeming the program. You can't consider Jesus by... Listening to people recount fanciful tales of claimed trips to heaven and claimed direct encounters. True knowledge of Jesus comes only from the reality of God's word revealed in the 66 books of the Bibles we hold in our hands. Now if I have time, I'm going to come back to that thought in just a second. But I want to finish talking about the text. For consider him... Now, what are we specifically considering as we open God's word? Who has endured such hostilities by sinners against himself? It's important. We're not just reflecting on warm, fuzzy feelings. It's supposed to be reflection on his suffering, of what he endured. Why is that? Because we have to endure some of the same things. Tonight, and I pray you all come back, celebrating two ordinances of the church, baptism and the Lord's table. What is the Lord's table for? It's to remember his death. No person was ever treated more unfairly or more unjustly or worse than the God-man Jesus Christ. His life was without sin. His life was the epitome of love. And yet he endured hostility This word includes both words and actions. The abuse that was hurled at him. The physical suffering that he endured. And he endured it at the hands of wicked sinners. Sinful men and women did their worst. Of course, Jesus had predicted that would be the case. Matthew 20, 18 and 19 is an example. There are more. 
But Jesus said, Behold, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered to the chief priests and scribes, and they will condemn him to death, and will hand him over to the Gentiles to mock and scourge and crucify him. And on the third day he will be raised up. And of course, what Jesus said was going to happen, we know from reading Scripture, not from anything else, we know from reading Scripture that that's exactly what occurred. He was taunted. He was abused. He was physically decimated. He was tortured. People were mocking him. Save yourself. He claimed to be something. Do something about it. And even though one of the robbers ultimately was saved... The initial time on the cross, the robbers were heaping the abuse as well. That's a depravity that's hard to comprehend. They're dying themselves and they got time to heap abuse on somebody else. And what is the point of all this? Jesus endured it. He endured it to redeem us. Without him having endured it, he would not have gone to the cross. Satan's temptations, in part, were trying to get Jesus to bypass the cross. Jesus was not going to do it because he had his eye on the prize and he was running the race God set before him. I often go to 1 Peter chapter 2. Write this down. Be sure and write this down. It's a beautiful verse when you think, well, it's tough. When you're in danger of growing weary, when you're in danger of losing heart. 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 21 to 23 And there's a lot behind it, and there's a lot in front of it. But in this little snapshot, it says this. For you have been called for this purpose, talking to believers. Since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example for you to follow in his steps. Who committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in his mouth. And while being reviled, he did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats but kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. That's how you avoid growing weary and losing heart. You remember what happened to Jesus, and you remember his response, and you try and do what he did. And before you say it's impossible, Jesus understood our weakness, which is why, for example, in John chapter 14, he was promising that he was sending an helper The Spirit of God indwells us to enable us to do these things we can't otherwise do. Just as Jesus endured by entrusting himself to God the Father and saying, God, I am in your hands. Your will is what I want. That's exactly what we're called to do. That's how we avoid growing weary and losing heart. I'll give you a clear principle. You cannot survive in this world as a Christian effectively If all you do is think about your problems, your problems are real, my problems are real, your struggles are real, my struggles are real, you don't have to pretend they don't exist, but in the midst of them, you constantly have to pick your eyes up and look away from your circumstances and look at Christ. God has designed his children to draw strength from the example of Jesus and the example of the word of God. God knows we need help. We're beaten down by our circumstances. There are times when we feel like we're hanging on by our fingertips. And then all of a sudden it's just the fingernails. The fingertips can't even hold. But this is where 
always coming back to God's word, not our feelings, not our circumstances, is critical. Because if we come back to God's word, we read a comforting text. Like John 10, 27 to 30. My sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. And I give eternal life to them and they will never perish. And no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all. And no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. That's how you keep going. God is holding on to you. Even when you're struggling. Even when you're tired. Even when you feel like I can't keep going. God is there. He's holding you. He's encouraging you. God will not leave us nor forsake us. No matter what you feel, God is present in your circumstances if you know Jesus Christ. Again, all the heroes of the faith are our example. Jesus is our example. I over and over go back to Hebrews 4. I read it the last time we taught Hebrews 4 verses 14 to 16 because of the encouraging truth you find there. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. It's another way of saying keep going. Keep putting one foot in front of the other. You can do it. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses. Just stop for a second. You ought to think about that. There's nothing more encouraging to me. Because I know how weak I am. And God's not angry at me for my weaknesses. He's not going to beat me up for my weaknesses. He's going to sympathize with my weaknesses. Does that mean he condones sin? No. We're about to get into a whole section talking about the discipline of the Lord of his children if you refuse to repent. Which will piggyback nicely with Pastor Steve's teaching on Psalm 32. But in the midst of our weaknesses, when we're trying to struggle to get to the end of the race... When we're being told by the author of Hebrews, keep your eyes fixed on Jesus, consider him, consider his example, we have verse 16 of chapter 4. Therefore, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. And all of that keeps coming back to God's word. I don't keep journals. But as I think through this, I've been at Lakeside now about seven and a half years, not quite, but close to it. Our family moved here in June of 2007. I started work as a pastor in July of 2007. It's staggering to me the suffering I've seen at this church since I've been here. The number of people who have had cancer is just relentless. The number of people who have wound up in surgery that weren't planning on surgery... The number of unexpected deaths, the job losses, the people that don't have the money to buy food, the people whose spouses just walked away, or the people whose spouses stayed and it's just World War III as a way of life, and children who have walked away from the Lord, and children who have broken hearts of parents. And I've only been here seven years. You go talk to Pastor Steve, who's been here 30 plus. And it's exponentially greater. Here's the point of all of this. God's not surprised by any of these circumstances. And what God wants of his children anywhere in the world, but I'm talking to God's children here at Lakeside in this moment right now, he wants you to turn to him in the midst of those trials. 
He wants you to cling to Him. And the only way to turn to God in the midst of your trials is to continually turn to His Word, which is the only source of truth about God. I've got a burden on my heart that may take me more than 10 minutes to share, but I'm going to try and share it in 10 minutes. And it's not a burden of me being angry at people. That's not it at all. But it's a burden based on observations I have as I look at the world of Christianity around us. I read the popular Christian things. I see what's being blogged. I see what books are being written. I see what Christians wind up on TV. And I counsel and interact with people going through struggles here at Lakeside. This burden is based on all of those observations plus my 20 20 plus years now of trying my best to walk as a Christian in a chaotic world. And this burden is based, perhaps most importantly, not so much on my experiences as on what I believe about the Word of God through years and years of studying. Now I want you to listen carefully for these next few minutes. My exposition of Hebrews chapter 12 verses 1 to 3 is largely complete. So this is my heart I'm sharing with you. But my heart that I'm sharing with you is based on the exhortation of God's word and how you do the things that we just studied that we're supposed to do. And I will say this. I don't think I said anything particularly controversial in any of my teaching in these verses. I think most people that hear it, certainly at Lakeside, but even in the broader Christian sense, would listen to what I said and they would agree because it's hard to disagree because that is what the text says. And yet, whether you're aware of it or not, and I see this at Lakeside, I see it in the broader Christian context, I see it in people I know that are Christians in other places, over and over again, Christians don't even realize that what God says to do, they're not doing. In the midst of our trials and troubles, according to these texts, we're clearly we're supposed to turn to Jesus. As I indicated, the only way to turn to Jesus is through the Word of God, period. There's no new revelation about Jesus Christ today. There's no new knowledge about Jesus Christ that goes beyond Scripture that is really true. In fact, in the midst of our trials, I just read chapter 4, verse 16 of Hebrews, we turn to God, we pray. That's how we find mercy and find grace to help in our time of need. But here's what I see. Christians want something more. Well, don't just tell me about read my Bible and pray. I, I want something else. Christians like the old bug lights, you remember the lights, you put it up and you turn it on, the bugs just zap there. Christians seem to be drawn to the miraculous, the spectacular. Well, the word of God is this. Oh, wait, there's a new book on This person says they experienced something. And I don't think it's God drawing people away from his word. There's an interesting account in the Old Testament that as I was preparing my notes yesterday, and we're not going to turn there. I'm just going to summarize it for you. It's in 2 Kings chapter 5, if you want to go there. It's a story of a pagan named Naaman who had leprosy. And through a series of events, a slave girl who had been a Jew told her leader that the people heard about Elijah. Elijah can take care of it. So the guy comes over to Elijah 
And he's expecting some razzmatazz. And Eliza says, go wash in the river three times, you'll be healed. That's it. And you know what the guy did? He got mad. He's like, I got water back home. What are you doing? He wanted something spectacular. He wanted something amazing. Something simple like go wash and be clean. Now, for his sake, he had a servant that said, hold on a second. If he had told you to jump through the moon, you would have jumped through the moon. How about you just listen to the guy? But as Christians, far too often, we don't want a simple prescription of the Word of God. We want something spectacular, something new, something different. This epidemic is rampant in Christian circles today. Christians won't believe the simple steps that God gives them, and I don't think they're always being rebellious. They're just desperate. And Satan loves to distract desperate people away from the only source of hope, which is the Word of God. I'm going to summarize this with an illustration, and I don't want to offend people, and I'm purposely not going to ask certain questions because I want you to listen to me. I don't want to dialogue with you on this per se. I'd be happy to talk with you later if something really, really bothers you about what I'm about to say. But I want to give you an illustration of exactly what I'm talking about that burdens my heart because it's symptomatic of what I'm talking about. It's symptomatic of a problem I see in Christian circles and we are not immune at Lakeside from this issue. I originally started using this illustration and I did use it when I preached a sermon in August of 2011. And my concerns have only grown since then. And again, this is not the only representative. This is an example that I'm using to illustrate something. There are countless other examples and I could give you names. But this is a relevant example by what's going on now. How many of you have heard of a book called Heaven is for Real? Okay, many of you. Okay. When I mentioned this in a sermon illustration in August of 2011, it was already a New York Times bestseller. I looked at the New York Times website today. This book has been on the bestseller list for 202 weeks. You can figure out that means since it's published, it's been a bestseller. Some numbers I read said it sold at least 8 million copies. It might have been more. What happens in America when you write a book that's that popular? Hollywood comes calling. A movie came out this spring, the same book. Big actor. It was released on April 16, 2004. It's grossed over $90 million in the U.S. only cost $12 million to make. You do the math. That's a profitable, profitable movie. Add in some overseas distribution, it's over $100 million. All because a four-year-old boy claimed he went to heaven. Can I tell you this book is not a bestseller and this movie is not a huge success because unbelievers are suddenly fascinated by his story. Rather, this book's success and this movie's success are based on the fact that Christians are looking for something to hold on to because the word of God don't mean to be harsh, but it's, I think it's true, doesn't provide enough comfort. We can't get enough of this stuff. Now, I want to be clear. I'm talking my opinion. I didn't share this with the elder board. I'm telling you, as your shepherd of this little group, I'm convinced we can't get enough of this stuff because we think we need something more than the Bible to sustain us in daily life. I want to be very direct 
you cannot learn anything substantively true about God from that movie or that book, period. You cannot learn objective truth by reading that account or by watching Hollywood's production of that account. Truth is found here. The sum of your word is truth, and every one of your righteous ordinances is everlasting. Psalm 119, verse 160. Jesus, John 17, 17. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. Truth is not found in the dreamy recollections of a four-year-old boy that were recorded years later by parents that aren't very theologically grounded notwithstanding being a pastor. There's no way around this. You can't learn anything true about heaven from that book or that movie. You want to know anything about heaven, it's what God revealed. And if God chose not to reveal something, it's something you don't need to know. Understand, there's nothing new under the sun. You go back to the early centuries of the Christian church, people have been claiming to have these experiences. And over and over and over again. And this little book by this little boy's father is not even the first one in this time period. There are other books written in the last five years that were bestsellers about heaven supposedly being real or hell is real. Now, come on, Joe. It can't really hurt, can it? Yeah, it can. Here's why it hurts. Because it trains us to look for encouragement and hope Somewhere other than the only source of truth we've been given by God. We don't need the events of life to prove Scripture is true. Scripture is true, period. I want to be sympathetic here because I understand struggles. But if you constantly need to see proof of your faith, if you need to see, if you need to see, if you need to see, you have to wonder, are you exercising faith? Hebrews 11.1, 1, faith is assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. 2 Corinthians 5.7, for we walk by faith, not by sight. Books and movies like this book, and I'm just using this because it's the illustration of the day. There are other books like this. What they do is they train us to look elsewhere. I don't need to believe what I can't see because little Colton Burpo told me it was real. That's the little boy's name. Jesus lovingly addressed Thomas, the disciple who doubted the resurrection, who said, I want to touch you. If I don't see and touch and touch, I'm not going to believe. And when Jesus came and compassionately said, go ahead. Thomas didn't touch. He said, my Lord and my God. But Jesus said this. Because you have seen me, have you believed? Blessed are they who did not see and yet believed. We are blessed, not cursed, because of faith. We are blessed even though we don't get to see everything that other people have seen. It almost goes to the point of making Jesus a liar, saying, I wasn't feeling good about things, but now that I read the account of a four-year-old boy, now I feel good. Now I think the Bible's true. That's twisted. That's distorted. Now Christians defend the book in one of two ways. One, they say Christians are encouraged by it because now we have evidence of our faith. There's nothing true in that book. 
you didn't need proof and encouragement of a fictitious account. And I say fictitious not because necessarily the little boy's lying. Just don't believe that's a real revelation from God. And if you think that's a real revelation from God, you've got a whole other host of issues with the word of God. Can we be encouraged by what happens to other Christians? Of course we can. In fact, that's one of the reasons we gather together is to encourage one another. Can we be encouraged by one another's life? Of course we can. In fact, that's a command of Scripture. For time's sake, I won't read it. I'm running over. 1 Thessalonians 5, 8 to 11 makes it clear. Encourage one another. Build one another up. But the way we encourage and build one another up is not with mystical experiences that nobody else can find out. I went to heaven. I saw this. I saw No, we encourage one another because they look at us and they see flesh and blood person enduring hardship. And yet still pressing on and still having faith in God. That's the encouragement we get. It's not through mystical, razzmatazz experiences. You want to encouragement. Don't go to some fanciful account of Jesus with a rainbow horse. And everybody in heaven's in their 20s and 30s. And they all have wings and they're flying around. And the angels have to have swords because Satan's trying to storm the gates. That's not truth. You want to be encouraged by what God says about himself. You want to be encouraged by believers. Look at somebody like a Mike Mitchell who went through a terrible bout of cancer. And watch he and Terry day by day trusting God. And that's just one example in our group. There are countless others. That's where we draw encouragement. Not some fictional account of somebody we don't even know talking about things that can't be proven Here's the final thing. People say, well, you know, it can be encouraging. Here's the mindset behind the authors of the book. There's a whole Q&A. Don't go there. There's a Q&A on the website. How will we know each other in heaven? Here's a question. The Bible isn't unclear on that. Well, then we should stop. But according to Colton's memories, and then he gives an answer. What does Mary look like? Mary, the mother of Jesus, has dark hair, brown eyes, and by Colton's remembrances is a little taller than his mom. What did the lights look like above the heads and people? Colton says, blah, blah, blah. Do we really get wings in heaven? As Colton says, the Bible's silent. Colton clearly remembers, again, this is a four-year-old boy. How are the wing sizes determined? Colton describes. Do God and the Holy Spirit have wings? Colton says. About Satan, well, he showed Colton. Is there any way to explain Satan? Colton remembers. Colton told his dad. Brothers and sisters, what is the authority in your life? Is it a four-year-old boy spinning stories? Or is it the word of God? Final point. I'll just make it quickly because I'm out of time. Some people say, well, but it's evangelistic. Unbelievers will believe this now because this is a little boy wouldn't lie. Okay. Little kids wouldn't lie. All the parents said amen. (laughs) So it must be true. People aren't going to be saved, according to the word of God, by the testimony of people who have experienced heaven. Jesus couldn't make it clear. Luke 16, 24 to 31. On your own time, read through it. 
It's the account of Lazarus and the rich man. Lazarus was poor on earth. The rich man had everything. They go to the afterlife because they both died. The rich man is in agony and torment. Lazarus is being comforted in the bosom of Abraham. And the rich man says, let Lazarus come put just a drop of water on my tongue because I'm in agony. Abraham says there's a chasm. You can't bridge that gulf. Then the rich man, in a moment of clarity, says, Well, then send Lazarus to talk to my brothers because they're going to wind up here unless they hear. Abraham said, They have Moses and the prophets. In other words, that's another way of saying they have the Old Testament. Let them hear them. But he said, No, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. That encapsulates all I'm trying to talk about. If there's just a big enough miracle... Here's how Jesus concluded that account. But he said to them, Abraham, if they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be persuaded even if someone rises from the dead. Here's the point. Faith comes by hearing, hearing not by the word of Colton. Comes by the word of Christ, found in the word of God. If that's not enough to save people, it doesn't matter the miracle. They won't be saved. If they won't listen to the scriptures, they're not going to listen to a four-year-old little boy or a 50-year-old person claiming to go to heaven or a 70-year-old person going to claim to go to heaven. This is where we live. This is where we stand. Why doesn't Pastor Steve do dramas or something like that? Why don't they do more stuff? All you do is teach the Bible. Because we don't have anything else to say. Period. Let me close this with prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, I pray that my words aren't misunderstood, Lord. I pray if I've said anything that was wrong that you would make it be quickly forgotten. But I do pray, Lord, that you would fixate us on Jesus Christ. That we would look to your word for truth. Pray, Lord, that you would help us to be compassionate with one another as we go through trials. Lord, so often we don't even know brothers and sisters are in trials because we don't share and we don't talk and we don't ask. Lord, we don't want to be a cold, unloving place filled with truth. We want to live the truth. But we do want to make sure, Lord, that we're living by your truth. Pray, Lord, that you would help us in the midst of our trials to fix our eyes on Jesus that we could consider Jesus and his suffering and what he endured and that it would be an example to us so that we could endure. We ask all these things, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.